I am convinced that banking crises are a party perennial, will, will never eliminate banking crisis risk unless we eliminate banks. When we see a bank increasing its deposits and investments by 400% in a period of five years, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. That's a reliable leading indicator, uh, to my mind, of a likely non-viable business model. Silicon Valley Bank didn't know what to do with all this money. It didn't know where to park its liquidity. And uh, that was a warning sign, uh, an interesting issue that we will learn more about with the passage of time, is why the regulators didn't make more of a fuss about those kind of problems. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Uh, today, it's a great pleasure to be joined by Professor Barry Eichengreen. Barry is Professor of Economics and Political Science at University of California, Berkeley. He has published widely on uh, economic history and the international financial system and written a number of acclaimed and influential books, uh, including Golden Fetters and Hall of Mirrors about the Great Depression and um, Exorbitant Privilege. And his most recent book is In Defense of Public Debt. Professor Barry Eichengreen, it's great to have you here with us today. And it's good to be with you, Alan. Great. Well, we normally get our guests just to give a quick intro to their career path. And obviously, you've got an interesting focus, uh, specializing, I guess, in, in economic history and international monetary matters. What what got you to focus on those two areas uh, as an economist? Well, when I was coming up, as it were, international economics was not very widely studied or practiced in the United States. Macroeconomics was closed economy macro. The international economy was not as important to the United States in particular as it became later. Globalization was not yet a thing, but I'm a first-generation American 
Uh, my parents came from Europe, I guess, uh, by virtue of that, I became aware of the fact that there was a big world out there at a relatively early age. As for economic history, I think it's useful for people uh, if they want to become scholars or for that matter, anything else to find their niche, to figure out what they're good at. And I figured out pretty rapidly that there were other economists who were better at the math than I was, but that I could mine the historical angle, if you will, better than they could. Uh, so it was partly a matter of calculation and partly a labor of love that I enjoy doing the history. So I ran with it. Good stuff. And I mean, economic history is, is probably fair to say maybe back in vogue now in the last decade or so after the um, global financial crisis, there was maybe a suggestion that, that the economists equipped with their mathematical models hadn't uh, really learned uh, the, um, the lessons of history. Um, you focused a lot on the Great Depression and, and, and obviously with your book, Hall of Mirrors, there was a lot about the parallels between global financial crisis and, and the Great Depression. Generally, I mean, do you think um, when we look at, uh, at economic history, how much can we expect to, to learn and, and how clear do you think the parallels are at any given time? I think history is useful both for pointing to similarities between past and present, but also for, for understanding the differences and understanding what is new and different, what is distinctive about the current crisis, whatever the current crisis will be. So I, I, I don't subscribe really to the view that history has lessons per se, but I do think it provides uh, a, a broader canvas and analytical perspective. It's a reminder of what the modelers leave out and uh, what they leave out can be uh, as important sometimes as what they put in. And I guess one of the challenges that you often hear in economics, you know, versus the physical sciences is this inability to, to conduct controlled experiments. And I suppose history gives us, uh, I suppose, uh, so something of, of a solution to that. But as you say, each episode is different. Is it, would, would that be how you think about it? I, I, I prefer to think about history as an uncontrolled experiment. Again, I think I prefer the formulation that history provides a broader canvas and, and uh, a reminder of, of what's left out. And us tried and true economic historians kind of bridle sometimes over against the way historical evidence is used uh, sometimes too mechanically to shed light on, on, on current policy concerns. I, I may be guilty of the same from time to time because I am concerned with current policy questions and I, I'm often asked or tempted to use that history to understand current events better. One of the books you mentioned, Alan, Hall of Mirrors, about the Great Depression and the Great Recession, the subtitle of that was Uses and Misuses of History. So. The, the, the message there was that memories of the Great Depression, the lessons drawn from the Great Depression did importantly inform uh, bank regulators and monetary policymakers in the 2000s, but they also served kind of as a, 
a set of blinders that caused us collectively to miss out on some new things that were happening in that case outside the banking system. And that's a, it's an interesting uh, point. That, yeah, the subtitle uses and misuses. So, you know, in the last few years, we've had a number of different um, scenarios that have prompted people to look in the past. I remember seeing you on a, on a, on a, on a webcast just as COVID was um, coming to the fore and being asked about parallels with the Spanish flu, etc. And then obviously in terms of maybe the use and misuse of history, obviously everybody's been focused on this inflation problem in the US. And I suppose Jerome Powell has been, you know, alluding to the experience of the 70s and, and you know, how Volcker ultimately conquered inflation. I mean, is that potentially a, a misuse um, in the sense that are, are there very different scenarios now or do you think it's a valid use? Well, again, I think that um, we, we can uh, inform our views of current monetary and regulatory policies better by looking at what happened in the 1970s and 1980s. But conduct of monetary policy now is different than it was back then. Forward guidance is better developed. Central bankers believe in open mouth operations as well as open market operations. They do more to try to communicate to the markets. The financial system is more complex and diverse than the largely bank-based financial system of the 1970s and 1980s. So I do think we've learned important things from that experience in the 1970s. Arthur Burns, uh, Jerome Powell's predecessor, 50 years ago, really denied the idea that monetary policy was capable of taming inflation. And I think we've uh, moved beyond that misconception. I think Paul Volcker actually had to try three times to raise interest rates before he finally succeeded in, in, in aiming inflation, partly because uh, um, he too was concerned that if he raised rates, something would break in the banking system. So twice he was too quick to relax and the inflation problem only got worse as a result. So I think now we see the Fed behaving differently and continuing to tighten, albeit at a slower pace than before and using other non-interest rate instruments to deal with problems in the in the banking and financial system. So those are all constructive lessons, I think, that have been drawn from that earlier experience, despite the fact that both the instruments and the, and the markets are quite different now than they were 50 years ago. And maybe taking a step back a few years, do you think it would be a reasonable criticism to say that maybe there were some lessons not learned in terms of being overstimulatory with respect to monetary policy and this kind of fine-tuning of monetary policy to try and hit a very specific inflation target. You know, some people maybe drew a parallel between the kind of the 1960s where there was this more of activist uh, economic policy and a, and a belief that you could really hit the, 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 the exact level of inflation and un, un, unemployment. Do, do you think Maybe that was a, le um, a lesson that, that was forgotten. 
No, I don't think I would put it that way. Rather, um, I think I would argue that monetary policy has been broadly appropriate uh, for the last decade or so, up until the last year, year and a half, that central bankers did the right thing in, in, in response to the global financial crisis. And then it was appropriate for them to keep interest rates low because deflation was slipping into a deflationary trap, into a liquidity trap was a very real danger. And had they tightened or normalized the level of interest rates earlier on, that deflation could have materialized and we would have been in a very serious problem. The Japanese have been trying to get out, out of that problem for like 20 years, right? Clearly, the Fed fell behind the curve in the last year, year and a half. They didn't see the inflation problem. But in, you know, to be brutally honest about it, most of us did not appreciate how rapid and persistent inflation would uh, become starting in 2022. So we collectively, with a very few exceptions, fell behind the curve. I think the real problem has been on the fiscal policy front central banks had to keep interest rates so low for so long because there wasn't appropriate fiscal support for recovery in the in the 2010s too much austerity if you will and then in 2021 there was uh excessive uh superfluous deficit spending the biden stimulus of 2021 overdid it and it together with the supply chain supply side problems produced this near double digit inflation that that we've been fighting against since so central banks have been the only game in town if you will they've had to mop up problems created by other branches of government if you will i think by and large they've done that pretty well but monetary policy cannot solve all problems and you mentioned, you know, uh, we've been in, in this tightening cycle and, you know, central banks will, will tend to keep tightening until until something breaks. And, you know, obviously in the last number of weeks, we've had signs of things starting to break. As somebody who's looked at, you know, the Great Depression, the global financial crisis and many other banking runs through history, I mean, how worried are you about what we're seeing in markets at the moment? And And again, I guess, interesting to get your perspective on similarities and differences? Well, I, I am worried because I think we have seen a demonstration of the power of contagion. Contagious fears of depositor runs and the like have leapt across the Atlantic from all the way from here on the West Coast to Switzerland and, and, and to an extent Germany. And banks that look well capitalized one day can be in serious trouble the next if there's a collective loss of, uh, of confidence in, in, in their business model. We call that a depositor panic. But, and, and, and I think we've seen how quickly that kind of panic can unfold in our high-tech world of chat rooms and uh, webcasts and so forth. So I think there's good reason to worry, and there is some reason to be reassured policymakers are on the case. In Switzerland and the United States, policymakers can be criticized for many things, but 
Uh, they cannot be criticized uh, for responding too slowly or cautiously. So they've moved decisively to guarantee deposits and to uh, force shotgun marriages of banks, uh, all of which for the moment, as you and I speak here today, seems to have uh, gone a long way towards stabilizing the situation, restoring confidence, and we'll have to see how, how durable that restoration of confidence uh, turns out to be. But it, this is not a time either for the regulators or for innocent bank depositors like you and me to uh, let down our guard. And is that the, I mean, the lesson of history as well, do you think, in the sense that when you get these situations, you know, one one side is arguing for aggressive responses and the other side is cautioning about moral hazard, et cetera. And, and that played out, I guess, during the global financial crisis as well. Is is that, have we learned that lesson with Lehman that, that this is when you get a situation like this, that you act decisively straight away and, and then worry about the consequences later? Yeah. So my reading of the history is there is... Um, moral hazard risk, and there is meltdown risk. And the first task for regulators and other officials is to deal with the meltdown risk and, and then turn and deal with uh, the moral hazard risk once, the, once conditions have stabilized. That, of course, is easier said than done. Uh, an example would be after the global financial crisis was uh, contained, Regulators and officials in the United States turned to moral hazard risk, and they passed Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank was, uh, among other things, raised liquidity and capital requirements for banks, required banks to draft living wills, describing how they would wind themselves down in the event of existential threats to their existence. And then we relaxed those rules, of course, in the U.S. for middle-sized banks with uh, deposits between $50 billion and $250 billion. And look who got into trouble. Banks uh, exactly uh, in that tier, who had been the principal lobbyists in many cases for rolling back that uh, response to the, the moral hazard problem. In, interesting. I mean, in terms of the you know, obviously, we're in the midst of a banking strain. Maybe banking crisis is is a little strong, but but you've obviously studied banking crisis, financial crisis, currency crises, and you know, normally economists would point to certain preconditions that might be in place that that might be kind of warning lights in terms of debt and imbalances or and liquidity conditions, etc. When you think about history and 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 those types of dynamics, and look at the current environment now, would you say there's more reason for concern or, or not based on, on, on the kind of typical criteria or the typical conditions that would be for, for, for financial crises? I am convinced that banking crises are a hardy perennial. We'll, we'll never uh, eliminate them, eliminate banking crisis risk unless, unless we eliminate banks and banks serve a Im important economic and social purpose. In, in my view, but when we see a bank increasing its deposits and investments by 400% in a period of five years, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. That's a 
reliable leading indicator, uh, to my mind, of a likely non-viable business model. Silicon Valley Bank didn't know what to do with all this money. It didn't know where to park its liquidity. So it parked it in ultimately unhedged um, treasury bonds, fixed interest rate mortgages, and the like. And uh, that was a warning sign, uh, an interesting issue that we will learn more about with the passage of time is why the regulators didn't make more of a fuss about those kind of problems. So the San Francisco Fed did flag them starting in 2021, but that didn't deter SVB from continuing to do what it was doing. I think there are further things that we can do to discourage uh, excessive risk-taking by bank management. Uh, in particular, I think in addition to requiring the shareholders and the subordinated debt holders to have skin in the game, in other words, uh, their investments are on the line and will be wiped out if the bank goes under, management ought to have more skin in the game. So recently we've heard some proposals that management uh, salaries and bonuses should be clawed back in the, in the event of failure, big time. And I think that's uh, a fine idea. If you go back in history, many early banks were subject uh, in the United States, for example, to what was called double liability where uh, if the bank went, went under, not only would the owners of shares lose the current value of those shares, but they had to pay back the par, higher par value of those shares. So that's a historical analog to what people are, are proposing today. Interesting. And we had um, the economist William White uh, on this podcast going back a couple of months, and you know, I suppose his very much the kind of BIS view of of the world. Obviously, he was formerly chief economist at the BIS, and I suppose you know he I, I, he, he describes the global economy as a, a complex adaptive system, and, and and because of that, crises are going to be a recurring phenomenon, um, almost in you know, in, it's an almost inevitable because of human error and behavioral biases and, and just the, 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 the setup of the, the, the markets and the economy. Would, would you share that or do you think that's excessively pessimistic um, perspective on, on financial crises? I think crises uh, will all, always be with us. They result from human error, as, as you explained, Alan, but they also result from asymmetric information. Not everybody knows what is lurking in, in, in the balance sheet or the business model of a relatively opaque financial institution or other economic uh, entity. So people trade on rumor as well as fact, and ru rumors can get out of hand, can have a life of their own. Uh, banks are intrinsically fragile. Uh, because they are leveraged and because they engage in maturity transformation, meaning they can quickly get into liquidity problems. We, we've learned this is why you need a lender of last resort, why you need more stringent regulation than 
the political system tends to deliver. We're, we're uh, unlikely to get rid of the problems uh, of short-termism and self-dealing that afflict our politics. So regulation is not going to be sufficient to abolish problems uh, of financial instability. So that is a longer-winded way of saying what Bill White said in your earlier podcast. Um, obviously, you've, you've written a lot about the international monetary system and, and the dollar, and so you've written some recent uh, stuff as well on it, and you, you wrote the book um, Exorbitant Privilege probably about 10 or 12 years ago now, and I think at that time, probably quite a topical um, um, forecast to say, you know, that, that, that ultimately the dollar would be replaced and... Uh, by, by either the euro or, or the renminbi, and, and obviously we've moved on another decade, and, and and the dollar seems to be as strong as ever. But 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 after the you know the Ukraine, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was this you know suggestion about you know that 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 might be a risk for the dollar again with the weaponization of of the dollar. So curious, um, I, I read an article from from Paul Krugman actually re- recently, and he said basically no, and he kind of concluded. So no, the dollar's dominance isn't under threat, and even if it was, it wouldn't be a big deal, which seemed a bit a bit blasé from somebody in the financial markets who, you know, watches the dollars going up and down. Would you agree with the kind of the Krugman view or or not? Or you so on those two points, is is its dominance under threat? And 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 if it was, would that be a, a significant issue um for, for financial markets? So along some dimensions, the um Dominance of the dollar has declined a bit since I, I, I wrote that book, Exorbitant Privilege, in 2011. The dollar's share of uh, international reserves held by central banks has gone down from about 70% then to about 60% today. So that was a prediction I made in Exorbitant Privilege, and I'm happy to remind you of that fact. I did make a second prediction also, which was um, that the euro and the renminbi, the currencies of the other two big economies, would uh, become more serious rivals to the dollar, and that hasn't happened. What we've seen instead is movement toward non-traditional reserve currencies issued by small, well-managed economies like Norway, Sweden, South Korea, Singapore, Canada. Australia, uh, reflecting the fact that the financial system has evolved quickly in ways that we couldn't, didn't anticipate 10 plus years ago, making those currencies easier to trade and use. I think that we will continue to see that kind of movement gradually over time, that as the United States comes to account over the long run for a lower share of global trade and global GDP, as emerging markets continue to emerge. The dollars will gradually decline. The United States cannot continue to supply safe and liquid assets to the world as a whole, all by itself, indefinitely into the future, if you believe in the logic of economic convergence or catch-up by emerging market economies. Russia, Ukraine, how much will that change things? Um, The Chinese renminbi is not convertible. China's uh, uh, interbank payments system 
CIPS clears about 2% by value per day, the transactions that the New York clearinghouse clears in dollars. So countries are going to be looking to China as an alternative to uh, the New York clearinghouse and the dollar and SWIFT for doing their cross-border transactions. But China has a long way to go before its currency is halfway as attractive as the dollar. If the dollar loses its exorbitant privilege, how much difference would that make? Depends on the circumstance, uh, it seems to me. Under normal circumstances, not a whole lot of difference. Uh, people like Frank Warnock at the University of Virginia estimate that the U.S. government can borrow at interest rates maybe 20 or 30 basis points uh, lower than otherwise because there's this captive market of central banks and sovereign wealth funds holding U.S. Treasury securities. And there may be some uh, commensurate benefit to U.S. corporations, useful but, but not gigantic. There's convenience value to U.S. banks and firms being able to do foreign business in their own currency. They don't have to buy hedges against exchange rate movements. But under unusual circumstances, when there is a crisis of one sort or another, the dollar doesn't collapse. People flee uh, the flight for safety into, uh, is into the dollar and into U.S. Treasury bond market. So that's kind of an automatic form of insurance for the United States. So I agree with Professor Krugman about uh, what is true in normal times, but there is that important exception. And going back, we talked about the financial crisis and, you know, one of the ironies of the crisis was, was you know, prior to the crisis, everybody was focused on these global imbalances. The current account deficit in the US was 6-7% of GDP and you had this Bretton Woods 2 arrangement and, and the, the concern was that it was unsustainable and that this was going to be the source of trouble. Uh, and then, as you say, we, we, we had the crisis. I think originally, initially the dollar weakened, but then obviously strengthened uh, quite a bit. Is that, you know, the whole area of current account deficits uh, comes to the fore in the midst of periodic bouts of dollar weakness, but then kind of gets brushed aside. Um, I mean, mathematically, the, the US still has this very large negative net in international investment position. So, I, you know, in theory, I guess you could have a, a situation where people, for whatever reason, all want to dump dollar assets at the same time. And that tends to be the argument put forward. Is, is that a reasonable thing to worry about? Or, or is there uh, some reason to say that that's not really that, that the way to think about it? In, in the last five, six, seven years, there has developed a big literature on global safe assets. Not only central banks, but corporate treasurers want kind of a safe asset that can act as the bedrock of their portfolios. And the U.S. remains the, the dominant provider of those safe assets for the moment. So it's conceivable, but highly unlikely with one exception, to which I'll come in, in, in a moment that there could be run on the U.S. Treasury with everybody dumping, foreigners dumping their Treasury bonds 
on mass in the same way that one could have a run on uh, Silicon Valley Bank. The one exception, of course, is something that you and I haven't touched on and that we have all been mercifully distracted from by the banking crisis, which is the debt ceiling crisis. So this will come around again in August or September when the U.S. Treasury is not going to be able to pay its bills, and it will have to decide who not to pay, including possibly the bondholders. Um, And that could really, if that happens, that could really change the perception internationally about the safe asset quality of U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, People would be looking around more seriously for alternatives. And uh, if there are alternatives to get into, they will be trying to get out of treasury bonds, at least um, going forward. We collectively have cried wolf before about the debt ceiling starting in 2011, but, but a couple of times 2013 after that. I think the uh, problem is much more serious now than it was on those previous occasions. So the typical scenario is that Republicans demand spending cuts as the price for raising the debt ceiling. They don't get everything that they're asking for, but in the end, they compromise or they back down to avoid financial disaster. This time, there is a wing of the Republican Party that would welcome financial disaster and that is not inclined to compromise or back down, and whether the Republican leader of the House can bring along enough of his members to support uh, a compromise spending bill and uh, to support raising the debt ceiling, I think, is, is a real, entirely open question. And so, obviously, that risk that you present is very much I guess you've got the mechanical risk of a bondholder of, of not getting your, your, your coupon payment. And then obviously you've got, I suppose, a credibility uh, or a lack of credibility about U.S. policymaking and a risk premium associated with that. There are two obvious reasons for, for, for why the dollar might come under pressure. I mean, on the other side, you know, if, you, if the debt ceiling gets resolved and you had much higher spending in the U.S. and for whatever reason over the next 10 years and, and, and generally higher in, Inflation profile, um, presumably that 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 could alter the uh, the confidence in in the dollar hypothetically as well. Well, if you look out ten years, the Congressional Budget Office forecasts that on current law, the public debt in the hands of the public, federal government debt in the hands of the public, will rise from a hundred percent of GDP to a hundred and eight percent of GDP. Is that? Uh, catastrophic, uh, unsustainable trajectory uh, doesn't seem so to me. Uh, if you're concerned about it, the solution to it is to raise taxes. If you look out further, there then does develop for demographic and other reasons a real problem of debt sustainability. Um, we have some time to address it. Am I confident that we have the political will will to do so? Not entirely, but I don't think it's a problem that will materialize and threaten to demoralize financial markets and undermine confidence in the dollar for uh, un, un, until a number of additional years pass. So have me back on in 2033 and we can talk about it. 
fair enough. Um, I mean, you mentioned that your own Remimbi haven't really um, taken up that um, mantle as as kind of real competitors to to the to the dollar. Um, and obviously, the euro has had its own you know challenges. Obviously, we had European uh, debt crisis immediately following the uh, global financial crisis. Um, and I know you have written around you know the, the 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 kind of conditions required for 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 the euro to survive and and thrive I, I guess so i mean looking at europe now obviously with covid we had a a step towards you know mutualization of debt etc and you know there seemed to be greater uh, willingness to to move in that direction and and obviously you, as time goes by you've got new personalities in terms of heads of state etc are you more or less optimistic about the euro where we are now in 2023, or uh, do you still see it as kind of um, a flawed experiment or, or a flawed union in, in, in some sense? Well, I think uh, it, it, it's clear with benefit of hindsight that the move to the euro was premature, that having a monetary union without a banking union and some form of fiscal union was problematic. Uh, to say the least, but Europe has gone far enough in the direction of banking union and uh, so forth, I think, uh, to put those existential doubts about the survival of the euro to rest now once and for all. The European Central Bank has become a normal central bank as opposed to a monetary rule. It has acknowledged its responsibility as a lender of last resort and a liquidity provider of last resort. And I think that was uh, essential for the survival of the euro. Mario Draghi's do whatever it takes speech was a decisive turning point. Uh, so the euro is clearly here, here to stay. But that is different from saying it will become a first-class international currency. Uh, because, among other things, there is a shortage of uh, safe and liquid, high-quality, public-label, euro-denominated securities. Last time I looked, only four European euro-area sovereigns have AAA ratings, and most of their bonds have been hoovered up by the European Central Bank or have to be held by Europe's own banks for as, uh, as capital. So, there isn't much high-quality euro liquidity to go around for the uh, the global economy. Um, I was temporarily hopeful in 2020 that Europe had um, experienced its Hamiltonian moment and it was going to issue more high-quality European Union debt. And it tur turns out that that looks like a one-off. It did uh, agree to issue 850 billion euros worth of, of EU bonds in response to COVID. But where was the joint and several issuance in response to the energy crisis and, and, and the war in Ukraine and so forth? I fear that uh, what happened in 2020 may have been a one-off. And then with respect to China, um, obviously the, the, the renminbi is not fully convertible, so, so presumably that's a constraint, but but there does seem to be a bit more of um, movement towards, you know, you hear Saudi pricing oil in Remimbi or, you know, Russia, China doing trade in Remimbi, etc. So 
how realistic is kind of a, a separate Remimbi block developing where, where Remimbi is becomes more widely used among kind of um, friends of China, I guess. I think as um, China continues to build out its financial system, gradually relax its capital controls, negotiate more swap lines between the PBOC and foreign central banks, use of, uh, of the renminbi will broaden. And as countries, governments absorb the lessons of U.S. financial sanctions on Russia, they will want to diversify and um, uh, at least develop the option of doing more business uh, via the renminbi and, and, and Chinese banks and China's cross-border interbank payments system. Having uh, said all that, I don't think the way to think about this is a regional block, but rather countries around the world. Uh, Argentina has just activated a swap line with China. Countries who want this option to uh, alternative to dollar dependence, developing that uh, that option. So, I'd, uh, if there is a complete and utter breakdown between the U.S. and China over Taiwan or high altitude balloons or uh, a Chinese military aid to Russia, then there could emerge a, a, a China block and a Western block. But otherwise, I think they're they're more likely to overlap. I would say two two more things about this. Number one, you mentioned Alan, President Xi's visit in November to Saudi Arabia. And what they actually did was to discuss the possibility that Saudi Arabia would accept payment for oil exports to China in renminbi, that uh, payment would be deposited in a Saudi bank account in a Chinese bank. They did not discuss the possibility uh, of pricing oil in renminbi instead of dollars. And I think that's revealing that there doesn't seem to be an appetite on the part of the Saudis to entertain that possibility. The second thing I would 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 say, uh, I used to tell my this uh, my Chinese hosts, uh, the following when I visited China before the pandemic, every true international and reserve currency in history has been the currency of a political democracy or republic where there are checks and balances on arbitrary action by the executive. Uh, this is true of the dollar, the pound sterling, the Dutch guilder before that, the currencies of the Republican city-states of Florence, Venice, and, and, and Genoa before that. So there are political preconditions for uh, truly internationalizing your currency. And China has been moving in the opposite direction, more centralization rather than political decentralization under President Xi. And has there been a change in view in terms of their tolerance for um what might come with greater internationalization of Remimbi. I mean, I think my understanding was that there were there was a reluctance to go down that path of encouraging internationalization. After you know, you would tend, you may get an appreciation of the Remimbi over time, which was something they were keen to avoid. Is that something? As the economic uh, model hasn't changed yet dramatically, but the assumption is that it may change over time. Do you sense that change in in, in approach there or, or not? Well, I, I, I do sense a change in approach. China has to do more financial reform and 
uh, put its big banks and regional banks on a more of a commercial basis where they don't engage in policy lending at home and abroad, but they're normal commercial banks. It has to continue to reform the financial system more broadly. Uh, and that kind of uh, financial reform and liberalization will challenge the control of the center of the PBOC and SAFE and the Politburo. And, you know, they have been moving in, in the opposite direction, trying to, trying to strengthen their control. So, uh, as I said before, I have not been to China since before the pandemic. Few of us have. It's a little hard to judge from the outside. But, you know, verbally, they remain committed to renminbi internationalization, and they are taking select steps to promote it. But I think they worry about uh, the compatibility of party control of the economy and financial system on the one hand, and the prerequisites for currency internationalization on the other. And you touched briefly on on the kind of the projections for U.S. debt levels uh, going forward, and, and you seem quite comfortable with those levels. And there does, and obviously you've written about this in your most recent book, um, In Defense of Public Debt. So clearly, well, presumably you felt the need to make the case to, to defend it. I guess that's part of the political environment we're in now. But has that case changed, do you think? Obviously, you know, if you look at the Maastricht criteria, it used to be kind of 60% of GDP seemed to be a cutoff for the Europeans. And then you know, following the global financial crisis, you know, the Rogoff Reinhardt research around 90% got a lot of attention. Is there a general recognition now that these higher debt levels are okay? Or I guess coming out of COVID, a lot of people were saying these debt levels are way too high. We're going to have to see financial repression um, that, 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 that policymakers are going to let inflation be higher than expected to, to, to erode the value of the debt. Where, where do you stand on that? When, whenever I'm asked about this, I remind the interviewer that the debt to GDP ratio has two parts. And uh, the more successful you are at growing the denominator, the less worrisome is given level of debt or a given debt ratio. The World Bank came out yesterday with a new set of projections for the world economy and for developing countries in particular, and they've scaled back their uh, forecasts for emerging markets in developing countries in particular. So that makes me more concerned about uh, now heavier debts in the emerging and developing world. When we talk about uh, advanced countries, we, we know that for us, 75, 80% of GDP growth is productivity growth. Our labor forces are shrinking and uh, much of our investment is replacement investment to make up depreciation of existing capital stock. So uh, economists are, are not good at predicting productivity growth. You know, it's the residual of our total factor productivity calculations. It, Robert Solow put it, it's a measure of our ignorance. So you tell me what productivity growth is going to be over the next 10 or 20 years. There is a scenario in which artificial intelligence is going to be deployed to uh, take over a lot of 
tasks that are being routinized more quickly than we ever thought possible, and where productive workers are redeployed to, to doing other more specialized, more productive things. So I can imagine a scenario where the debt problem is not a problem because we grow out from under it. That That's a, a happy scenario. Uh, I find it harder to imagine a scenario where uh, U.S. politicians sit down and, and achieve a meeting of the, the, the minds about how to balance the budget and, and bring this problem under control. So book you mentioned in defense of public debt describes on, on the one hand how governments with good reason uh, issue public debt big time in response to emergencies, be they a pandemic or a financial crisis or a war. But prudent governments then retire some of that debt or at least reduce the debt ratio when the crisis passes. So we're much better at doing the first than we are at doing the second. You asked me at the top of the hour about meltdown risk and moral hazard risk. We're similarly much better at addressing the first than we are at the second. So you can, you can see a pattern here. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the point where a lot of people would probably have a concern that during COVID, we got used to, you know, um, issuing lots of uh, checks and uh, financial supports. And, and obviously we're, we're seeing that again with the energy crisis, at least uh, here in Europe, obviously with energy costs effectively being subsidized effectively. So on the one hand, you know, central bank trying to tighten monetary policy, but effectively on the fiscal side, you're seeing some um, stimulus effectively. So I, I think that's part of the concern that that, that maybe we've had that, um, you know, um, obviously going back a few years, modern uh, monetary theory, you know, was to the fore, et cetera. And, and, and obviously there's been a sea change away from accepting austerity to, to a greater political uh, acceptance of, of higher spending, it seems. Would you agree, agree with that? Well, not a higher spending across the board, but rather when an emergency arises, we splash out the checks indiscriminately, and that creates unnecessarily large deficits and debts. So in response to COVID, uh, the U.S. government gave checks to households with household incomes up to $150,000. Uh, you know, I submit that a, a household with an income of $150,000 probably could have taken care of itself. And similarly, uh, checks in a variety of European countries to deal with the energy bill were provided indiscriminately across the board to everyone as opposed to being means tested. Uh, so clearly, politicians find it hard to provide emergency support to those most in need without providing it more broadly because they need everybody's votes if they're going to be re-elected. There is a systemic problem here. So obviously, as you say, you know, in an ideal world, uh, the, the way out is to, to, to grow uh, via, um, you know, productivity, etc. Um, in the absence of that, I suppose that the suggestion is that allowing inflation to, to be higher than expected and will, will generate higher nominal GDP growth. And that's the whole idea of financial re repression. Do you think that's a, is that something that the policymakers seriously consider 
Or is that something that people on the outside looking into the policy world assume happens? But I mean, you know, do you think central bankers ever really say let's 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 allow inflation to run a little bit higher from from a debt sustainability perspective? Well, not not central bankers in the United States or the euro area, in my view. I think the price stability culture, low inflation culture is deeply ingrained in the minds of our central banking brothers and sisters. I think creditors, bondholders are, are a powerful constituency. So, um, we have succeeded in inflating away part of the debt burden in the last year or so, but interest rates are now headed up. So I think that opportunity is pretty much past. The other way that economists think about debt sustainability is in terms of R minus G. In other words, real inflation-adjusted interest rate relative to the rate, rate of growth of real output, real GDP. The real interest rate moves slowly uh, to all appearances. I think there are some signs that it may be headed up, at least modestly. The real interest rate depends on the balance of global savings and global investment, with China growing more slow, slowly and saving less. Ben Bernanke's global savings glut will diminish or go away. And I think there is likely to be a surge of investment coming from uh, the climate change and energy crisis and the security and military crisis. So if global investment goes up relative to global savings, we'll have a higher real interest rate, uh, and that will make debt sustainability correspondingly more difficult. If we can grow the real economy more successfully, uh, echoing that earlier discussion you and I had, uh, that will make the debt burden lighter. And that, I suppose, brings us to another topic that I know, I know you've looked at from a long-term perspective as well, and that's um, secular stagnation. And I, I, I know Larry Summers and Olivier Blanchard were debating this recently, and, and the, the debate seemed to center around this relationship between, as you say, RNG and whether how strong growth will be and, and, and whether we'll see higher rates. So it sounds like you are now, you, you're, you're in, the, in the camp that... that that maybe secular stagnation might be in the past if we're going to be in a in a more environment of slightly less uh, surplus savings and, and and a little bit higher in terms of uh, the the likely trajectory of of investment demand over time. Well, you're 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 trying to make my view uh, out as a little bit more sensational than it really is. Uh, my own historical work, looking back 150 years. Uh, the work of Paul Schmelzing, who is uh, Austin College, um, goes back 500 years. And I think the message that comes out, out of this work is that the real interest rate moves slowly, even glacially, uh, except in, 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 in the event of uh, world wars and the like, uh, something that um, I'm, I'm not prepared to contemplate. So... Uh, I can imagine that with savings a little bit lower globally and investment a, a little bit higher globally, we could be moving into a higher real interest rate environment, but only modestly. Okay. And 
the, the one episode that we've had recently around where, where there was a concern around, I guess, fiscal policy, debt levels, um, and growth concerns was obviously with with the UK experience, where you know um, the, Liz Truss's experiment with with supply side economics, I guess you might call it, uh, wasn't well received by the markets, and and we hit a tipping point in terms of UK gilt yield levels. Do you think that that was very much a UK one-off type scenario, or do you think um, it's a warning shot that that you know the bond vigilantes that used to be so prominent? in the 90s that that may be coming back and that that, that policymakers have to be more uh, cognizant of that risk? Well, I think the UK trust government problem was idiosyncratic, distinctively British, um, but it was a useful reminder about the importance of coherent, internally consistent policies at whatever the level of debt, but especially if if the level of debt is high and the financial system has weaknesses as uh, two conditions that are met in a wide variety of countries. Mm. And you've written your, your book, obviously, very much focused on public debt, but um, th- there are concerns out there about the level of private sector debt around the world and, and that the system is, is too indebted. Uh, Obviously, China in particular, but not just China, many European countries as well have high private sector debt levels. What's your sense on on, 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 on that side of it? Would that be more of a concern than the public debt side? Um, I think it depends on the country. So in the case of China, corporate debt and uh, household debt related to real estate is a bigger problem than public debt. On the other hand, I think uh, in in a variety of advanced Western countries, there has been quite a bit of progress um, since the global financial crisis in terms of private sector deleverage. It depends on on circumstances, but the corporate debt problem in in, in China, uh, the debt of construction companies and property market linked companies, uh, Evergrande is prime case in point, certainly bears watching. The whole area of, of, of debt and uh, debt sustainability and, 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 and debt crisis, particularly with respect to, to, to emerging markets, tend to be you know, inextricably linked with, with kind of currency crises as well. You, know, you, you have touched on how the, the, the World Bank um, adjusting their forecasts yesterday. I mean, in, in, there was a lot of concern coming out of COVID around the, the emerging world, obviously, with respects to the vaccines and, that, and the impact that would have. Um, take, broad, in broad strokes, what would you say is the, the outlook in the, in, in the emerging world at the moment from, from a growth, from a debt, and from a currency perspective? There are um, literally dozens of low-income countries which came out of COVID with unsustainable debts that are now effectively locked out of the markets and uh, where the where governments are unable to provide basic social services to their constituents. The common framework, which was put together by the IMF and the World Bank and devised to combine uh, governments of advanced countries with the other big creditor, China, has been a dismal failure in that only one country, Chad, 
has been able to restructure its debts under the common framework. And only three others are trying at the moment where there may be three other, three dozen other countries that desperately need to restructure their debts. So part of the problem is getting China and, and other governments on the same page to restructure their bilateral intergovernmental debts. An even bigger problem is getting uh, the private sector creditors, the bondholders, in other words, on the same page with governments and the multilaterals. The common framework was supposed to help with that, but it hasn't. So I'm um, very concerned and worried about uh, debt problems, the debt crisis in low-income countries and in a number of middle-income countries like Sri Lanka. Okay. Well, we're, we've been talking just about an hour, so we, we often ask guests just when we're wrapping up um, for, for advice for, for, for people who want to learn more about their respective fields. So obviously you're, you're, you've got the expertise in economic history, international finance, the monetary system for, for people starting off in their careers or for anybody who wants to learn more about economic history. Obviously, we reference a number of your own books, so they're good starting points, but you know, it can be quite daunting. Um, but and, and any any kind of advice around good places to start uh, if you want to learn more about these topics? There's a, a, a website out there called Five Books. Asks uh, wise men and women for recommendations of, of books in different fields. And they've done this for economic history recently, asking actually a UC Berkeley student, Davis Kedrosky, uh, for recommendations. They've asked uh, me in the past and other economic historians as well. So I would go there. Well, that's great. Well, Professor Eichengreen, thank you very much. This has been a, a fantastic, uh, insightful uh, conversation. So thanks very much for, for speaking to us today. So make sure to follow Barry's work because obviously you can hear from today's conversation, we're living in a, a very interesting global macro-driven world. So it's as important as ever to be up to speed and informed on all things global macro. So from all of us here at TTU, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back soon with more exciting episodes. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.